Okay, let's say tonight is any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I'm saying so. That book you're given, that beautiful Bible, open it up and read it and test all things by it. All right, so let me kind of give you a basic rundown of the entire New Testament in three acts. The first five books are what are called the Torah, uh, and the Torah simply is a Hebrew word for teaching. And the emphasis is on teaching, though there's clear historical accounts because it goes from the creation to Israel entering into the land of Egypt. But during that particular period of time, we have some sort of major players, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's called Israel, Joseph, uh, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. Uh, We see through the Torah, uh, we see them enter into Egypt and then basically be pulled out of Egypt, but not necessarily make it into the promised land. Now, there's arguments and debates on the idea of the promised land. Is that heaven? I have a couple of problems with that. I mean, one is that an awful lot of battles need to be fought to get some ground there. But what God had promised was that there was a place outside of the land of bondage, beyond a place of wandering, that was a place of fruitfulness and abundance, a place, dare I say in the simplest sense, a place of overflow. He says, before this point, you watered with the foot. Any of you ever watered with your foot before? The streams ran from the ground in the, in the silty Nile, so you could close it up by just closing up the thing with your foot. You could open it by just kind of shoving open that little ravine. But now you're going to have to trust me because the water is going to have to come from the sky and you can't make that happen. But it is a place where you walk in faith where I will bless you with abundance. Now, I'm not talking about you get the Bentley because if that's the best you think God has to offer, you are way solid, I'm sure. But understand, I think in most people's lives that call themselves Christians, and we'll address a few of those aspects as we go on. Most people's lives, we get the idea of getting out of bondage. We get the idea that our life was just a minus. It was a, it was a sucky, horrible place. And, and Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. And whether that was some form of physical addiction, like be that some form of drug or alcohol, or be that some form of sex addiction, or be that just being consumed with yourself and pride and so forth. Whatever those things were, we were still slaves, and we understand the idea of, God, I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want that bondage anymore. I don't want, I don't want to be someone's slave. I don't want to be under someone's tyranny, tyranny like that. Which one of us in our right mind wouldn't want that? But unfortunately, we kind of get the idea that that's the sum and total of Christianity. Like somewhere in it, it's kind of like, you know, and you hear these testimonies, they're 50 minutes long and 45 minutes of it is about the bondage. Have you heard those? And it's, to be honest, because that's what we saw other people do. So it was like, you know, I was really horrible and I was kicking puppies and I was slapping nuns and I was yelling at children and I was stealing their candy and I was horrible and there I was drinking, rubbing alcohol on the side and, and cutting myself with stones and then I got saved. The end. And what we get out of that kind of testimony, though all of that I'm sure is true, is that God saves total losers. Praise God. I qualify. But then we kind of get the idea that like the story ends. It's like God says, all right, well, now that you're saved, roll credits. Like God's selling a timeshare. It's like, okay, you bought the product. Let's move on. Because that's what we understand in the Western world. And yet what he relates it to is adopting into marriage. Now, could you imagine, as you were aware of, most of you, we've adopted. Uh, we have a daughter who we would say is biological. She praise God. She looks like her mother. And we have a daughter we've adopted. They're both 
just as much our daughters, and of course you all know that. And by the way, they both have very much our traits, even though our youngest one is Chinese, which doesn't look either like, like either of us. She has more hair than everyone in this room, except maybe Dan, and we'll talk about that when we get into our text. But God favors, well, no, he doesn't, but anyways. Uh, but please hear me in this. Could you imagine it's like, okay, oh, we adopted Ruthie. Okay, that's it, the end of the story. Now, anyone in this room would be like, so where is she now? Did you take her back with you? Is she living with you? Hello? She was 13 months old. That would be a good idea. That's when the story actually begins. You get married and imagine it's like, put a ring on it. You can play the song if you want to. We're good. And that's the end of the story. I really get bugged out by those people. who You ever see those shirts that say things like game over? And obviously they're standing at, you know, she's got like a wedding veil on. I'm like, well, the game should have been over before you started chasing after, if you're going to be honest. But not that, you know, your games. But the point of, the point of all of that is, is that if you think somehow just saying yes to Jesus is the end of the story, you've ripped yourself off of the rest of your life. And there comes this time where you realize, wow, I'm not addicted to these things anymore. So who in the world am I? And you know what we usually do? We get our identity from our tombstone and we say, hello, my name is, and I'm an ex. In other words, I don't know who in the heck I am at the moment, but I know what I was. And I'm not that. So hello, I am this former thing. I'm a former alcoholic. I'm a former violent person. I'm a former whatever the case. In my case, I'd say I was formerly extremely violent. But God says, from the very beginning, I'm going to take you out of this and bring you to a promised land, a land of flowing with milk and honey, a, pl- a land of abundance. There's a place of overflow and fruitfulness. And the moment you leave bondage, that's your destination. Could you imagine that's what we grasped? Now, for that to happen, we're aware that the old generation has to die. Everyone but two people die in the old, including Moses, by the way, who, by the way, like a good musical, he sings a song and dies on a mountain. Uh, and, uh, but then in all of that, a new generation has to rise up to take the promised land. And in the same way, we're told in the book of Romans that the old man, we're to reckon dead. The old us dies and God resurrects a new person because it's the new person that actually takes on that abundance, that takes on that fruitfulness. How cool is that? And by the way, we talk about that in marriage. We say it's two deaths and one resurrection because the single youths die, single youths, like from New York, single youths die, but then one person resurrects. That's the two of you united. And if you can't get that, you're going to have a horrible marriage. And then the reason I say that is, is that understand what the Torah is teaching us, though that's the historical portion, is there's a great deal of teaching and the emphasis is on like the Ten Commandments and the civil law and the ritual law and those type of things. So we get that in the Torah. But then from that point until the, the poetic prophetic books, that's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the Psalms, the Kings, the Chronicles, Azra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all of those books tell us the history of Israel once they finally get into the land. Beyond that point, what we have are the poetic and prophetic books. We get into things like Psalms and Proverbs. We get then into the prophets, by the way, who are inserted into our historicals. Beginning the historical context kind of helps us understand where everything fits in. Traditionally, when Israel's at its worst, God sends his most. 
That's kind of the idea. And it'll do the same with you. When you're kind of in that place where you are just putzing it in regards to your walk with the Lord, God will send somebody into your life to tell you because you're not listening to him directly. And, and that's basically what every prophet, for the most part, what almost every prophet's doing that we see in those records. So this is what I want to do in this sort of short uh, form of this is those historicals, from the moment they enter the promised land through Joshua, to the point where basically we end the historical function of the primary, where that's the primary emphasis, are basically broken up into seven sections. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to walk you through those, and then I'm going to actually give you some sheets of paper, because I'm going to challenge you guys to do this. There are seven sheets of paper, each one that kind of fills one of those slots. And what I'm going to challenge you to do is to try to put them in order. So, but I want to, don't want you to do it alone, so you break up into groups. You just... You know, we'll sort of throw JJ on your table. We'll throw Dan on your table. And then you guys just see if you can work out the seven in a row. That's the idea. And then what will happen is, is once you get this, then you're able to go, well, this is where we're at in that point in history. So you kind of get the broad spectrum. What you realize is the Bible's really not that intimidating if you actually read it. So here it is. The first part of it, Joshua takes Canaan. That's our first part. Uh, Moses can't take it. Joshua brings him in. You're probably aware of the fact Joshua is just the Hebrew name for Jesus. Yehoshua means God is salvation. It is also important to note it was one of the 11 most common names in Jesus' day. So it would be like saying Bob. So imagine if it's like, hey, there's Bob from you know, Manchester, and you'd be like, or John from Manchester. You could understand why they would kind of need a little bit more of a context. Jesus, by the way, happens to redeem the name. But I do like you to point, to point out when Jesus does cross the Jordan, a quick note on that, Jordan means literally from judgment or the flow from judgment because Dan means judgment, right? Daniel means the judgment of God. So, you know, like if your name is Nathaniel, your name literally means God's gift. So if your name is Nathaniel, you could think you're God's gift. You are. But if you think your name is Daniel, well, then you're God's judgment. So uh, choose wisely. Single ladies. Anyways, the, um, he stops the flow of that Jordan at a place God calls Adam. I, God makes special note not only of the place that he stops and he stacks the water, but also the place that it's next to. The place that it's next to is called Zeratan. Any of you familiar with Zeratan? It would be weird if you were. Uh, just looking at your heritage, I wouldn't think any of you kind of are you know, Jordanian. Anyways, it's important to note. Zeratan means their distress. Adam means a man. Have you thought about it? Put it together. Joshua, Jesus, stops the flow from judgment at a man beside their distress. That's the gospel in just getting you into the promised land, for what's worth. That's Joshua. In the simplest sense, the overview of Joshua is kind of a simple one. Joshua has these three major battles. Uh, like, by the way, you will have three major battles even now in your walk. You have the battle with your flesh. You'll have the battle with the world. And you'll have the battle with the enemy himself, who's, by the way, just a liar. That's the point. Now, don't miss this. The first three battles are just like that. The first battle is the battle of Jericho, Yericho, and, and the battle is a battle of faith. God tells them to do the most insanely, completely non-military thing they could. March around the place for seven days, make yourself a walking target, and then get your jazz cats out and let them blow their horns. Loose paraphrase. What do they do? They march around on the seventh day. And by the way, I think the big miracle is to say, now look at none of you. I don't want any of you talking. Can you imagine? Which means, because let's face it, if they could talk, it wouldn't be like they'd be yelling at Jericho. Let's be honest. You're not even shooting at them. You'd probably look at each other going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. So he's like, I don't want you guys talking. I want you to march and be quiet 
On the seventh day they march, then shout really loud, blow your horns and watch this wall fall down. That's a, that's a battle of faith. Do you know John tells us in 1 John, this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. The battle out there, the world that's under the sway of the wicked one, John tells us in 1 John, is constantly trying to get you to trust yourself. And the Lord's constantly proving to us that we should trust Him. And the victory over the world is trusting Christ. Then there is the battle of a town called Ai. We, put it, we, we say Ai because we try to make it sound bigger than it is. It's seemingly insignificant. Jericho was a fortress, and it was a wall that was basically several meters deep, and then it was a space and another several meter deep space. In other words, it was, the wall was wider than most of our apartments. That would be the idea. Uh, well, here at least in London. Now, to take that down, God was going to have to do a massive miracle, and we saw that. But then we saw this little place that we knew was our next battle, and we didn't take it seriously. So we're like, well, let's not send everyone. We'll just send a, yeah, we'll send a handful of guys, a couple thousand. We'll send them out there. And we'll just kind of take it down. It's really kind of an insignificant. I mean, look, at, they couldn't even afford more than three letters in their name. Let's just take it down. And they get whooped. Now, granted, in that, there was a lack of consecration. Some of you are familiar. A man named Achan, we would say Achan, he lives up to his name, stole a bunch of stuff that he wasn't supposed to take from Jericho. And then basically, as a result, the camp was inconsecrated. The camp was unconsecrated because of compromise and they lost the battle to something that seems so insignificant and that's the battle of the flesh. It'll happen with every one of us. We don't take it seriously and we think, oh, come on, it's just, and usually that's, the word just always pops into it, doesn't it? It's just a little, it's just a little BET, it's just a little, you know, it's just a little reading the sun, although you, the only page you're reading is page whatever that is, you know, and it's like, you know how that works out and all in the end of it all, you're just, but you're justing making it like I and you're getting your butt whipped and you wonder why. And then God says, why don't you take every one of your men, first of all, consecrate the camp, get that thing clean, Get rid of that stuff and then go full force at it. And by the way, that's exactly what we're supposed to do in regards to the battle of the flesh. He tells us, he doesn't say that the flesh and the spirit are in a tickle fight. Probably where it says that the flesh and the war literally fury at each other. We read it as war against each other. But then there's a town called Gibeon. And they come and they remember they, how they lie. They basically put on old clothes. They like, you know, stopped at a charity shop and found the ones with holes in it, took old bread, and, and basically was like, oh, we came from so far away. Let's talk peace. But they really weren't very far away. And what they did is they tried to get Israel on their side by lies. And that's exactly what the enemy tries to do. Those are our three basic battles. And Joshua then, he takes on the south, and he takes on the north, and then the whole thing. And then he has to divvy up the land. And even after all the land's conquered, it's like only a few of the tribes show up to actually get the land. And the rest of them, he's like, will you get over here so I could give you land? Could you imagine God telling us that? He does. He's like, I've got so much more to give you, but you should show up for it. That's the whole story of Jericho. Oh, I'm sorry, the whole story of Joshua. So that's our first one. We've got to get into the promised land to start the history, and Joshua gets us in. Fair enough? That's our first one. Second, then, is a time of Judges. Time of Judges, by the way, it's actually a rather simple thing. It's a cycle. And it's a very sad cycle because um, I think I have a kind of show you what that kind of looks like here. The idea is, is that God, now that they're in the promised land, they're actually being way blessed out of their minds. And because they're blessed out of their minds, there's our one of the judges. As you can see. Um, basically, what happens is this. God blesses them. And because he blesses them so much, they take their eyes off of the blesser and they put them on the blessing. 
As a result of that, they go from blessing to betrayal. But as they do that, they wind up ultimately not only just shifting away from God, but serving other gods, false gods, obviously idols. And that leads them into bondage. As they find themselves in the bondage, they're like, how could I be a bond? How could I be in bondage? I belong to God. I'm in the promised land. How in the world can this happen? And things get miserable. And they get so miserable, they finally cry out to God and go, God, will you get me out of this? And God raises up a deliverer. And after he raises up a deliverer, they get blessed again. And guess what happens after they get blessed? They turn their eyes on the blessing instead of the blesser. And they move over to the false gods again. And the cycle happens over and over and over. And I want to warn you, this is the story of many Christians. It's like their story is like this horrible cyclical thing where they have these amazing, they're like spiritually bipolar. They're so on fire for God. And then they're like super in bondage. And then they cry out to God. And then they're super on fire for God again. And then they're super in bondage. And you kind of go, wow, watching you is making me dizzy. All of those people, by the way, it's important to note the first time they're in bondage for eight years and then they cry out to the Lord. Eight minutes would be enough for me to cry out, I'd like to think. The second time, by the way, it's 18. The third time, it's 20 years. And you know what you learn from that? You can develop a tolerance to your bondage. You just get used to it after a while and you stop crying out to God and you just think this is just going to be life. I'm always going to be addicted to porn. I'm always going to be violent. I'm always going to be a drunkard. I'm always going to be completely stupid in my relationships. It's amazing how we do this. So how do you stop that season if you're in it right now? Let's face it. Do you know people like that's going to be the sum and total of their entire Christianity? Because it's like, yeah, they were these super, it's like Guy Fox firework, New Year's Eve firework moments. But the rest of the time, it's like you're scraping up the rubbish from the day after. What God does after that is he brings them to kings. And he puts a proper king ultimately on the throne. And can I say this? Please hear my heart in this. The difference between living that kind of cyclical life and not is not about whether Jesus is your Savior. It's when he becomes your Lord. That's when things change. And there are people that are like, hey, in my mind, I can't understand how anybody in their right mind would ever want to not accept the gift of Jesus as Savior. Who in their right mind wouldn't say, well, yeah, this, this is a no-brainer. It'd be like a stranger wanting to pay your bill. But him becoming Lord, that's an infinitely smaller circle of people. Because that means you hand him your life and he has the right to do what he wants with it. Now we say those things bravely often in praise. But do we really mean them? So Joshua takes us in. We have that horrible time of cycles. And then we have three kings of the United Empire. Saul, the people's choice. And then David, God's choice. And then David's son, Solomon. So here's my picture of the three kings. Um, these are the three kings of the unified empire. Are you with me so far? So, Joshua takes him in. We do this dumb cycle. The kings stop that. But Solomon was a man with a divided heart. And as a result of that, he bore the fruit of it in the kingdom. 
And this will always happen. You leave a legacy of what's really in your heart. No matter what you profess, no matter what dance you do in front of other people, what song it is, whatever the case is, whatever your show is, and the bottom line is what's really in your heart will be your, what will leave you, that's the legacy you'll leave behind sooner or later. And Paul says it this way, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. If you sow to the Spirit, or if you sow to the flesh, you will in the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will ultimately in the Spirit Weep eternal life. I, I, I'm much bigger on eternal life than corruption. How about you? Corruption, in a simple sense, means rotting. Yeah, I have no interest in leaving a rotting legacy. So after the three kings, we have a time of civil war. Dan, you knew I was going to have to pick a picture like that for you. It's really simple. And please don't miss this, because we're going to, again, we'll get into the text in a moment, but I really, I'm giving us context when the kingdom divides, the ten northern tribes follow under a guy under the, under the tribe of Ephraim named Yeroboam, with a J. You say it like why? Yeroboam. Yeroboam, by the way, actually gives them a tangible God to worship that's not the living God. And that sin, the sin of Yeroboam, is recorded more in Scripture than anyone else's sin. Did you know that? More than Adam's, mentioned by Adam's sin. More than Judas's, mentioned as Judas's sin. Yeroboam's sin was mentioned at least 22 times in Scripture as, oh, this guy did like the sin of Yeroboam. So the ten northern tribes. In the south, that makes it two tribes. Those are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, from which we get the name Jew from Judah, and the renegade Levites that actually still want to live in Jerusalem. So they're in the south. The problem is in the north, you have horribly stupid kings, 19 of them, each one horrible, not a single one of them decent, and ultimately the north is taken captive by Assyria. Um, actually, it would be today Iran. I'm sorry, Iraq. Iraq. Matter of fact, do you know that in Iraq you can find Nineveh today? It's actually still Nineveh. There, matter of fact, the guy that was before the president as of recent in, in Iraq, Iraq and Iran was a guy named Ahmadinejad, who actually claimed to be the second Nebuchadnezzar, which is Babylon, which you would think he'd know this. There have been five Nebuchadnezzars. So if the guy had done his own history, he would have known he could have been number six. Anyways, yeah, bless him. All right, so the north is taken captive by Assyria. And again, that's Iraq today. That would have been Saddam Hussein's territory. And you would have thought during that time, Hezekiah is king in the south. You just thought he would have learned this is 721 B.C. But what happens is it just doesn't work like that. He's, the, he's, the, he's, in south, he's in the southern side of Israel, Israel and Judah. He's the king of Judah. So in other words, it would be like England watching Scotland taken captive. But he doesn't learn. Ultimately, he'll have the most wicked son of all of them, a guy named Manasseh, which literally means he makes you forget, which would make sense. So ultimately, the south is taken captive as well. Now, interesting, the south is taken captive in three campaigns. It's important to note. The first time, they take their choicest men. That's Daniel, for instance. Guys named Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them, of course, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were all the guys that, in other words, they looked around and they said, who are the best guys? And they took them and they castrated them. So it wouldn't be like, check it out, awesome, I'm the best. You... I don't think it's actually something you want to win. But then you were made servants in the temple. I'm sorry, you were made servants in the palace of Babylon. So some of the Israelis were taken there, I said to the Judeans. 
Then in a second campaign, by the way, for what it's worth in 597 B.C., it was actually 10,000 guys taken captive and thrown by a brook called the Brook Chabar. And, and, and one of those guys that happens to be part of the 10,000 is a guy named Ezekiel. Some of you are familiar with him. A guy who actually has 10 visions in a night. That's a busy night. Then finally, in 586 B.C., Israel, I'm sorry, Judah is taken captive. Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed. And with that, everything is in shambles. Left there before that was Jeremiah. And it's important to note, everywhere that Israel was, God had a witness. If it was in the palace, he had a Daniel. If it was with those 10,000, he had an Ezekiel. If it was back in Jerusalem, he had a Jeremiah. God was never going to leave you alone without a witness. Oh, how good that is. Now, we're almost done with this to challenge you, and I'll, I'll review in a moment. Finally, God had promised, and for what it's worth, one of the things God demanded all the way back in the Torah, remember those teaching books, was that you were not only supposed to have a Sabbath once a week, Shabbat means rest, but your land was supposed to have one too. That's called, by the way, a Shabbat Aretz. Aretz means land or so forth. So Aretz Shabbat. Now, he said every seventh year, you work for six years, you farm for six years, on the seventh year, let it life follow. In other words, leave it alone. But it wasn't just that you left it alone because you actually were letting the soil replenish, though you were. You were also letting the poor people have at it. And the poor people, they always had the corners, by the way, of your field. But here, they actually got the feast. Israel did not do that for 490 years. Now, that's a long time that one-seventh of your years have been neglected. Now, I don't know how long it takes before you think, oh, we're getting away with this. Probably the first seven years, probably wondered, 14 year comes around, uh, 20, 21, uh, but by 490, you probably thought God's completely forgotten about it. Yeah, close, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's is the term, but Shemitah is the idea of actually allowing everything, including the village. That's the idea. Yeah, so consider this. Does anyone know what one-seventh of 490 is? 70. God takes, lets southern Israel, southern, in this case Judah, be captive for 70 years. Aren't you thankful he didn't charge interest? The land lied follow for the 70 years they neglected. It was very nice of him. I mean, let's face it, if God were anyone else, if God were our government or the government in America or elsewhere, we would have been in bondage for like 490 years. It's like, well, there's interest. And then what God does is he allows them to go back. They go back in three campaigns. Remember how Jerusalem was taken captive in three campaigns? They return in three campaigns. There's a guy named Zerubbabel. He takes them back and rebuilds the temple. And then there's a guy named Ezra. He goes back and rebuilds the people. And then there's a guy named Nehemiah, and he goes by back and rebuilds the wall. And that's the end of the historical passage. So follow me on this. Joshua takes them in. They have that horrible cycle of the judges. Then they need kings to stop that. Three kings of the United Empire, and then there's the Civil War. The North is taken captive. Then the South is taken captive. And then they return, and that's the end of the Old Testament. Did you get that? Does it sort of make sense? Well, let's see. You guys, take a table, take a table. Walk you through, and then we got a really cool story that kind of fills up the rest of our time. First Kings started with David's dying final words, roughly 960 BC. Can you figure out where that would be? 
first king started on which of those sheets? You know, kind of starting with the end of David's life. So that's actually the last. That's one of the three kings of the United Empire. And then it went to Solomon. That was a third of our three kings. To the civil war in 921 B.C. To the seventh northern king. That's a guy named Ahav. What a jerk he is. 850. And then the fourth king of Judea and Judea, Judah, because they last a little longer. His name is Jehoshaphat. Total lasting about 110 years. To the Israeli, by the way, those who read the Jewish Bible, First and Second Kings is one book because it actually starts you with the kings and it ends with the kings. It ends with actually the end of them. Second Kings picks up right where first king left off, which means it was the death of Ahav, that is the northern seventh northern king, and Ahaziah, his son, who reigns in roughly 850 B.C. So we start in roughly 850 B.C., this particular book. In Second Kings, we'll find the fall of the north and then the fall of the south, it's a total of about 164 years, give you an idea. This is what we can learn in the simplest sense. If there's a theme, the inevitable product of a lifestyle of intentional rebellion. You want to live in rebellion to God, you are going to reap what you sow. Now, our last few verses of the first Kings, listen to this closely, and this will give us into our, first, our chapter one, and you have that in your worksheet or, or in your uh, handouts. Achatiah, this is chapter 20, first Kings 22, verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahav, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. Who's his father? Ahab, Ahav. And he walked in the way of his mother. Who's his mother? Jezebel. By the way, she's not going to die yet. She won't die until chapter 9. Uh, and in the way of Jeroboam, remember that? That first king of the Northern Empire, the guy whose sin was famous? And in the way of Jeroboam, the son of, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord of God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Don't miss this. And this gets us into our text now of 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, please hear me. There is, in the life of every one of us, Iconic moments. Moments that, if we're going to be honest, they are moments that could fit on our epitaph. When I think of Michael Jackson, the one of the two MJs, at his funeral, they had the picture of him in Thriller. It was kind of like the iconic, you know, that kind of that sparkly disco ball shirt and the one glove and the shoes. I mean, there's a specific thing when you think of Michael Jackson, there's like this iconic moment. And it's like, in a simple sense, it's like Michael Jackson equates with this. This moment kind of sums up his life. Does that make sense? If we go to the other MJ, because I'm a little older, that's Michael Jordan. By the way, there's a specific moment for him, too, because it winds up on a lot of our shoes. Legs are spread. He's clearly in the air. His tongue is out and he's holding this ball like it's a pea as he's about to dunk this thing from about the distance between like he's jumping over the Thames. Right. But that's like the iconic moment for him. Does that make sense? 
Like, that's the one moment that in essence kind of defines so much of his life as we know it. Praise God, it isn't him trying to play baseball, for instance, or coach the Wizards. There's so many other things he tried to do, but that was the thing that was like, this really emblemizes his life. Churchill, him there signing the declaration with the cigar in his mouth because that's kind of the guy he was. You just kind of know that. Dolores O'Riordan, does anyone know who that is? It's the singer of the Cranberries who just passed away. The pictures of her albums from when she did the, well, the one album that had the song Zombie and Linger, the two songs that were sort of her fam- most famous songs. Anyway, she's an Irish singer. I just wondered what Lois saw. Um, they were, in essence, the thing that emblemized her life. There's a guy you may not know, a guy named Janis Korchak. Have any of you heard of Janis Korchak or Janis Korchak? If you've ever been to Yad Vashem in Israel, it is the Holocaust Memorial Museum. It is one of the most, pro, to me it's my favorite part of the whole thing, because everything else obviously is getting your guts ripped out by seeing what you see. And that actually, to be honest, is the one thing that evokes the most emotion to me. It's a, it's a statue of this man holding children. Because during the horrible Nazi crusades, he, though not a Jew, ran an orphanage to hold children and protect them and would not allow them to be taken without him going with them. Now for him, the moment, that moment is his iconic moment in his life. That's, I would say, the iconic moment for your epitaph. Does that kind of make sense? The question is, what's yours going to be? Wouldn't it really stink if you've already done it? Then that means everything's downhill from here. You think, oh yeah, I've already had my great moment. And you know people that are like that. Like they just can't get past the fact that when they were 20 and they had all their hair or whatever, this is how awesome they were. But now, you know, and let's face it, the older you get, the better you were and all that. Then the reason I say that is, is, man, if that's the case, then what are you doing? Like trying to drive your car on fumes? One thing I learned from Abraham is that just because you're getting older, and we all are, like it or not, it doesn't mean God's not about to roll up his sleeves and do his best work yet. For that guy, that first king of the northern empire, his moment was putting up a gold cow for people to worship. It'd be like that would be the thing on his epitaph. Could you imagine? Now for Ahav, Ahab... Could it be marrying Jezebel? Could it be him being a doofus? And there's like, I mean, the guy's just a doofus in so many ways, it's almost hard to pick a moment. Elijah, maybe, what would you say for Elijah? Would it be the moment he stood on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal and said, come on now, let's just call out and let's just see who's the phony here? Wouldn't that be a cool moment to have? Well, let's face it. If we read this story correctly, all of Elijah's life that's recorded works its way to that point. It works its way, and the reason I say that is, those moments, don't, you don't normally just fall into them. You prepare for those moments. In Michael Jordan's case, or Michael Jackson's case, there were years and years and years of preparation that got them to that place. What would be your epitaph? What would be your iconic thing? Would it be Marcia at the, at the prisons, kneeling down and praying with somebody that's there because she's there so commonly? Because it's one of the things that I think iconically when I think of her. And it inspires me. In Jeroboam's life, it was putting up a gold cow. But let's talk about Ahab's son. You tell me what the iconic moment is. Look at it with me. 
Chapter 1, verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahaz. Uh, the, Moab, by the way, is in the area of Jordan today. Traditionally, it was a vassal state to Israel. They paid with sort of ranch goods. But during a time when a kingdom changes, it's the time where it's the most vulnerable because the king is the commander of the army. So if you have a problem and you're under the taxation of another country and that country is replacing their king, it is the one time to try to push your luck. By the way, I think this happens a lot with teens if they think mom and dad aren't getting along. Anyways, uh, it is one of the reasons why we see that Revelation is battle-heavy because Jesus is handing the kingdom over to the Father. But anyways, during that time now, Ahab's dead and his son Ahaziah is taking his place. Look at verse 2. Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and he was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. Now, does anyone know what lattice is? Can anyone tell me what lattice is? It's not the stuff you put in salad. Lattice are cheap strips of wood that are thin and flimsy, put together in a grid pattern that you normally put in one of two places. You put so that things that grow can grow on them, like you put rose bushes or jasmine plants or whatever, they grow up lattice. Or in the Middle East, often you put them up as sort of blinds for your windows because they actually let the cool air in because they're full of holes, but they don't block out all of the sun as well, and they're just in essence there, and so they can help things grow there. Get the right things to grow there, you have a good smell coming in your room. How does a guy fall out of his window when he's got that there? Well, there's an easy guess, but again, it's not what the Bible tells me. This is as much as the Bible tells me, but I've seen people fall out of windows. they never, never sober. But this, by the way, God's going to record one event in all of his life, and this is going to be the event. Like, we're not going to know him for any diplomacy. We're not going to know him for any great bills that he signed or laws he put into action. What we know is that the doofus fell out of a window and then asked for the Lord of the Flies for help. So he falls out of the window, and he hurt himself so bad that he thinks he's going to die from it. Could you get that from verse 2 and 3? So he says, he sends his messengers and he says, Now go and inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I'll recover from this injury. Now, let's kind of get what we understand here. Ahaziah has an emblematic event. He was, he was leaning on something too thin to hold him up and it was full of holes. I'll say that again. He was leaning on something too thin and flimsy to hold him up and it was full of holes. So therefore he fell. And his fall was so profound, he wondered he would ever recover from it. But because he had no regard for the living God, he sent messengers to inquire of an idol that is called Baal, which means master, and Zivuv, which means flies. Why would you ask help from the Lord of the flies? Well, it isn't because there was a great novel that actually kind of helped us see what happens when you leave a bunch of kids alone. The, it's important to, again, Ugaritic word, um, Ugaritic word for master, because there was a plague in Palestine, and I mean that in the Philistine country, that was the area we would call Cyprus today, because it's where the Kaftarim they were originally from. And they had a plague of flies roughly about the same time as a plague happened in Egypt. Does that sound sort of familiar? 
And, and flies, by the way, have this tendency to breed disease. And when you have open running wounds, the last thing you want is a fly there. Now, then they weren't completely all hip on the understanding of germs and things they couldn't see. But they kind of got this. When flies were around, flies are normally, they like to congregate around two things, dead people and poop, neither of which you want to spend an awful lot of time hanging out with. But if you saw a fly land on, and pardon me for being so brash, but you saw a fly land on poop and then it lands on your open wound, you don't have to be brilliant to realize that's just not a good combination. And because of that, they kind of got the idea that if the flies were gone, then the, then the disease would leave with them. Now, don't miss this because there's a really important factor here that we could miss. People worshipped Baalzebub to keep him away. When I was in India, last time I was in India and landed in Kolkata, I saw a 90-something-year-old man rolling down a hill. It was one of the first things I saw, rolling down a hill naked, which nobody wants to see. And it was like, and he had, there were pieces of bone and glass in the street that he had personally put there. Now, needless to say, you're trying to be kind of cool about this situation with a person who's obviously a local, because inside you're going, what is that? But you turn and go, does this happen often here? And he goes, oh, this happens all the time. And I'm like, it's amazing that a man could live that long if he's doing this. And I says, please forgive me, but could you explain what he's doing? And what he says is, of the 300 million gods that are in the Hindu religion, he says, Kali is a god of destruction. And what he's doing is, he's, can, what our act of worship is, if he does this and he injures himself, then he will actually, then Kali will not visit him. In other words, he's preempting the punch. So I had to ask, can I just ask you a simple question? How many of the gods in the Hindu religion do you worship to keep away? He goes, well, all of them. I'm like, wow. And then I started remembering the time that I had studied all these religions when I was in university, and I realized that's pretty much everyone else's god. You worship them to keep them away because they're wrathful and angry and bitter and they're moody and they're all of these things. I don't even worship God to draw him near. I worship God because he is near. And I realized the way we worship is so different. Imagine if our, our, how our songs would change. Please go away. I mean, imagine what it would be like, our worship songs, you know. Another good day because you're gone. You know, it's, it would be such a weird idea. But we've done that within the church sometimes where it's kind of like, oh, God, you're wrathful. And he is to his enemies. And we were formerly those enemies, but he sent Christ to die for his enemies, which tells us that though he's actually, we've declared war on him, he's still forgiving us. What a crazy and awesome God. And the reason I say that is, this guy is seeking this thing, so he goes, if we could just get the flies out of here, which tells us he must have some kind of seriously open wound in his fall. He's like, well, then I think maybe I could get healed. So why don't you ask the, you know, the God that likes to hang around with dead things and poo? But God, on the other hand, he's not taking this thing lying down. Verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Eliyahu the Tishbite, Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? He's like, What, am I not here? Now, don't miss this, beloved. This guy was leaning on something too flimsy, too thin, and too full of holes to hold him up. And therefore he fell. And his fall was one that he didn't know if he was going to recover from. So what does he do? He inquires of a false god. Can you put those two together? 
What do you think it is to inquire of a false god? It's leaning on something too flimsy and full of holes to hold you up. As a result of that, you are going to fall. And every one of us have things we can lean on. It may not be the Lord of the flies, but in the essence of it all, it's still around dead things and poo, if you're going to be honest. It's the bottle, it's porn, it's people that you know you shouldn't be hanging out with. It's, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'll be honest, as a human being, I said goodbye to Hugo, and there's a part of me that was like, man, I need comfort. And I'm like, Lord, I better turn to you because any other choice is going to be a stupid one. And it isn't like I don't hear those things. And I can say, let me warn you again, every one of us, you're going to be tempted over and over and over again to seek your Lord of the Flies, to lean on that thing that's too flimsy and too full of holes to hold you up and you're going to fall. And people will run to the betting tables or they'll run to the strip clubs or they'll run to some new relationship that they don't even want a relationship, but for the night they think it's comfort. And whatever this thing is that they self-medicate with, it is just a thing too flimsy and too full of holes to hold you up. And the sad part about it is that happens to Christians. You know why? Because we've been told that's the way it works. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it's like, well, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. You ever get to that place where you get an attitude where you're like, I can even do something stupid on me right now. Like I'd smite myself and that's okay. And it's like, like God would ever tell you to do that. The one he loves. And every time we lean on something like that, I wonder in the world's eyes if they look and they think the same thing. Isn't, don't they talk about a God that's always with them? Are they saying he's not here right now? Hey, let's face it, there are going to be times where things are going to happen you will not have the answer for. And God is not required to tell you. You lose someone you love. Something happens to you that comes out of nowhere and you're like, what? And we ask the dangerous question, and that is why? As if God ever did anything for a single purpose. Like in other words, any single event ripples to a billion other effects. And God's only smart enough, he's the only one smart enough to be able to get all of those things right. They were like, God, give me the one reason why this happened. And God's like, nothing happens for one reason, but I guarantee you it's to draw you closer and others that you could be sure of. And you're like, well, that's not good enough. So I'm going to go lean on something else. Like, that's a smarter idea? You know what I've learned? If you, have, if you don't get an answer, if you don't know what, if you, how do I put this? If you get caught up in what you don't know, Never forsake what you do know to try to find the answer. And that is that, he good at, that he's good and, he's, and he loves you and his plan for you is to bless you and to give you a future and a hope. And if you forget that and that he's always with you and he'll never forsake you, he's with you to the end of the age. If you forget that, you'll declare war against the one who saved you because you don't understand something. But aren't we supposed to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean upon our own understanding? Do you realize your understanding is a lattice? Because even if we were brilliant, the most brilliant, it would still be flimsy and full of holes to try to understand God's ways that are so far above ours. So these guys are going to be sent 50 miles. 50 miles from Samaria, by the way, down to Ekron. That's going to be quite a journey. They basically get out the, get out of the house somewhere. That's 50. 
50 miles from the palace where the guy fell, Ahatia, to Ekron where the Lord of the Flies is, or they think. But Elijah's going to meet him. They kind of get out the door and Elijah goes, you know, just go back and tell him this. What, is there like not the real God here that you have to go all that way? And here's the funny part. God's actually there right next to him while all this is happening. And they're going to go long distance to go talk to a guy that they think handles flies. It is amazing how far we will go to sin. And yet we wouldn't go that far to church. And it's like crazy in all of this. And so he goes, hey, Will you go tell that guy, is this because there's no God in, in where you really are in all of this? That you have to go all this way to inquire? He goes, I'll tell you what. You want to know that the real God's here? You're not going to make it from this. You turn your back on me, you are going to die. You're a dead man. And by the way, you think, well, how in the world? Seems a little harsh, except God had already told us in Deuteronomy 13 that a guy that leads other people to foreign gods is to die. Elijah has already, I note, note Already inaugurated his replacement. Remember that. He's already put his mantle on Elishama, but God is not done with him. So the messengers return back to the king. And the king says, why did you come back? I mean, I didn't expect you back for days. 50 miles is a long way. And it's like, you know, I, I basically ate lunch and you came back. And they said, oh, a man came up to meet us. And he said to us, verse 6, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed in which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. One thing we could be clear on is these messengers know how to properly convey a message. Have you learned that? And they were messengers. Elijah said, said this, and they said it verbatim. These are good messengers. So the king goes, mm, what kind of guy was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? This is their one physical description. They said to him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he's just, that's Elijah the Tishbite. That's all you needed, and he got Elijah out of that. Now, the natural place we could go with this is that you would think God favors the hairy. This is an incredible, this is a, an unbelievably gifted prophet, and he's clearly hairy. Here's the good news. The next guy is bald. So, bro, there's room for both of us. I just want you to know that. Anyways, does it make you kind of wonder why then John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit of Elijah, would be clothed in a fur in the middle of the wilderness and a leather belt around his waist? They're like, I just think it's interesting because the last time a guy wore somebody else's clothing, he was ripping off someone's blessing. It happened to be Jacob. But this guy, he's not pretending. He's got his leather belt and he's got his camel skin. Have you ever actually seen camel skin untreated? Have you ever seen burlap? Burlap is an extremely abrasive, coarse material. It's like potato sacks. Imagine it's like 45 degrees outside and you're covering yourself in this. I think in Chafe City, but what do I know? And he's like, but he's covered in this. The good news about camel skin is it's fireproof. It actually is, it, it, it retards fire, which is nice. So imagine this. Now we're almost done, but don't miss this. The king goes, you know, they come back and he's like, you guys are here soon. This is weird. He goes, no, 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 a guy met us. And he said, oh, there no guy, you know, and he, he tells the story and he goes, oh, well, what did he look like? And he's like, oh, he's a hairy guy with a belt, a leather belt. You wearing a leather belt? Okay, 
so we'll know the difference. Anyways, and uh, and he's like, that's Elijah. Oh man. And he's like, and you can imagine this is Achatzi's first experience with him, his only real experience, and he's like, I've had enough of this guy. It's a problem though. When God calls and says you're a dead man, trying to kill a bunch of other people, it isn't going to really work. He should have learned that about his dad or from his dad. So the king sent to him, verse 9, a captain of 50 men, 50 men and the captain. So they went up to him, and there he was sitting on top of a hill. We don't even know what hill. God doesn't tell us. It's a hill. It's all that matters. And they spoke to him, the captain, and he said, Man of God, the king has said, come down. Remember, the, the king is a dead man. And Elijah said to the captain of the 50, he answered and said, If I'm a man of God, well, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. That was a rough moment. Now, I remind you, Elijah's already called fire down before, but it was on a sacrifice. And now, he's just not playing. So then he sent another captain. He is in the king, Achatia. He sent another captain with his 50 men, captain 50 with his 50 men. And the answer is, man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Apparently, news hasn't gotten out yet. This almost sounds like a joke at this point. And Elijah answered and he said to him, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Twice now we've got these guys extra crispy. And now the king's going to send a third group. How would you like to be that captain? Now let's face it. At that moment, you have a decision to make. Are you going to follow the king? Who's already got, by the way, condemnation sitting on him. Or are you going to go to the prophet in humility? Or are you just want to die? So it says in verse 13, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain and the 50 went up. And the man came and he fell on his knees before Elijah. And he pleaded with him. Do you know what it means to plead? And he begged him. And he said to a man of God, they all called him that. Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. In other words, please don't kill me. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains in their 50s. Captains of the 50s and their 50s. But let now my life be precious in your sight. And Fascinating. Look at what God says to Elijah in verse 15. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid. Afraid? A guy that can call fire down on people and he's afraid? Hey, just because God gives someone power does not mean they're not afraid. And a guy shows up with his captain of 50. He, Elijah can't call down fire unless God gives it to him. And the angel says, don't be afraid of them. You go right down and you go now. So he arose and he went down with him to king. So he said to him, so he goes and he's standing before the king. I remind you, who's obviously in very sorry shape. He's fallen out of the lattice. And he says the same thing. Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, because there's no God in Israel to inquire his word. Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed into which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Achatzia died. Sounds like it was the last thing he heard, according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, which means that on the both sides, now the north and the south, have a king with the same name. As if it wasn't confusing enough with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, now they both have the same name. That's First Kings 18. So that was against the prophets of Baal. So this is an entirely different year. 
Now, the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Don't miss this. This is our last verse of the, of the, of the night. Ahaziah's life is capsulized by this one moment. This is his one moment. Jordan in the air with his legs spread and his hand out. Michael Jackson in his thriller outfit. Ahaziah falling out of a window because he leaned on something too flimsy full of holes. Because he leaned on the wrong thing. What if that's the moment in your life? What are you leaning on right now? People say, well, Jesus is just a crutch. And of course, we want to go, he's not a crutch, he's a gurney, he's everything, which he is. Sometimes I just like to ask, well, let me just ask this, what are you leaning on? Your intellect? Your charm? Your youth? Your looks? The bottle? Your relationship? Clubbing? Your talent? What are you leaning on? You really think what you've got is better? In the end of it all, what's going to be, what's going to sum up our lives is what we leaned on. And either we're going to lean on the living God, the rock, the fortress, the refuge, or we're going to lean on something that's going to leave us fallen and dead. And that's the end of our lives. So this is what I want to pray as we end this tonight. That when we walk out of there, we are watching leaners. We are watching people leaning on lattices. We may not know what the lattice is, but we could sure it's a lattice. And it's flimsy and it's full of holes. And even if it holds you up once or twice, it is going to break. But unless you trust in the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you, you've, I mean, and even proved that he was solid enough to raise from the dead, that even death couldn't break him. Nobody else has that to say. No other person, no other institution, no other ideological, ideology or mindset. Nothing holds up like Jesus. And we would be insane to leave, lean on something else when Jesus is our answer. And I'm saying that first to Christians because the world out there is going to say, well, then he must not be here if they're leaning on that. But if you've not accepted Jesus, you've got to know it's a choice you make to permanently and for the rest of your life throw your life upon the one thing that will hold you up. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this beautiful verses. I mean, we went through so much. We, you know, here we were. We went through the history to get a context of where we are. But Lord, and then we looked through this life of this guy and his whole life is summed up with this moment where he leaned on the flimsy and the full of holes and he fell and he never recovered. And I recognize this is so many people's lives, but don't let it be any of ours. Don't let it be that our life is summed up by this. Well, there he was with a bottle in his hand. There he was staring at this. There he was chasing after this. When the one thing that could hold him up was beside him the whole time. So God, we ask your forgiveness as Christians for where we have in our foolishness and in our habits leaned on things that were lattices that did not be, that were not created to be things for us to lean on. God, we ask your forgiveness for those things that we could lean on you, not on our understanding, but rather to lean on you and to trust you, God, to trust you like we should. So God, tonight I just pray that we would fully put our trust in you in those challenges, in those moments, Lord, when we feel the need to lean, when we have to lean because we just don't get it. And we want to lean on our understanding. We want to lean on our friends. We want to lean on the church. We want to lean on, on whatever it is. But trading you in for it is such a foolish idea. So God, give us the courage and the wisdom and the faith to lean on you like we should. 
And having said that, Lord, I pray that there be anyone who has yet to receive your gift, your gift of salvation, that they would accept it now by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you paid for my sins on the cross. And when you died, they were paid for in full. And when you were buried, they were buried with you. But when you rose again, you left them behind and you offer me a new life. And I say, yes, I throw my life at you and say, for the rest of my life, I lean on you now. You are my life. I hand it over to you. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. You've heard our decisions. Lord, now I pray we would represent now. May we make us people who represent you right and lean on you. And may the emblem of our life be that people say, I saw Jesus in this one. In your name. Amen.